Hi, I'm George Techmichov here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson with another Easton Target Archery podcast. This one brought to you by Nespresso Tokyo Lungo. No, it's Without your sponsor, which, not mine. Well, I could get them to send you some. <laughs> your sponsor, not mine. The Tokyo Lungo is is pretty good. It's uh, it's a limited edition. It's actually not bad for you know for a machine made espresso, which I suppose is any espresso because you have to have a machine to make espresso. But that's a separate point. What's going on, man? How did it go with uh, going out to Yankton? Did you did you freeze or did you? Uh, stay somewhat warm i was darn cold that is for sure but i realized once you hit zero anything below this is the only place where the imperial system or the fahrenheit system makes any sense the one that landed people on the moon you mean yes um i'm not saying it's not the best but it's certainly not the most simple you know obviously with celsius putting freezing at zero um i don't think zero celsius 32 fahrenheit is that cold right where fahrenheit makes sense is once you hit zero fahrenheit everything below that just feels the same sure and it's just a matter of how much wind is involved if it's windy then it just sucks more yes but that's that's where fahrenheit makes sense and 100 is certainly freaking hot so you've got zero and 100 covered Yes. And the other thing that about the uh, the two scales is that when it gets close to the temperatures you had in Yankton, it's the same temperature. At 40, the scales cross, minus 40. So, wow. you know, you were pretty close. You were within three Celsius degrees of having things cross over. Mm. That's, that is chilly. Yeah. Fortunately, yeah, fortunately, you didn't have to shoot in those conditions. You just had to do everything else in those conditions. How did just Linda had to go take inside. it? Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty cold for her. You know, she's not accustomed to. She thinks she thinks zero Celsius is cold, and I do not. So, um, you know, it was hard for her. I, I will say zero, one, or two Celsius is very cold when you're on a motorcycle. I can tell you that from personal experience. Yeah, anytime there's there's wind in the equation. Yep. It's that's that's when cold gets bad. If it's dead calm, I don't mind cold not at all. No, no. So it was the first opportunity you had to get to a live tournament since September. How was it when you stepped up on the line? Yeah. Um, minus. Yeah, it really it was. So uh, it was fun. Um, I'm excited to shoot more events. You know, I was talking to Stefan Hansen. Um, and he mentioned that, you know, he had a considerable amount of butterflies stepping up there for the first time in a long time. Anything like that for you at all? Uh, I had to, like, talk myself into being nervous about it. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> hey, we're really doing this. This is normally when I'd get nervous. And then I just shot the arrow. Um, you know, and I. Because uh, it hits everybody differently. Yeah, and I ended up dropping a point in like the fourth end or something, so I didn't make it super far. Uh, maybe the second day would have been, you know, a little more nerve wracking. I'm sure. You it's were always, clean the second day. Yeah, but it was. Yeah, who cares at that point when you you've already right. missed one? It's easy. So the hardest arrows are usually your first ones and your your last ones, and you know everyone knows that. But yeah, um, I've gotten better at managing day one and day two. You know, at Vegas, especially if you're 
especially trying to close. I've gotten better at that. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't too, like, I wasn't too nervous. I was just happy that we got to do it again. So. Yeah. I think that that is the, the message I got from a lot of folks I talked to is just really happy to be there and, and happy to be back involved in, in live archery, just yep. like we expected people would be. Yep. What was the, um, what was the atmosphere like in terms of the uh, concessions to the condition of the pandemic? Did they do anything particularly special from your point of view? The pandemic is, is dead. And I say that there's two ways, you know, I read up on what the, uh, it was either the CDC or the WHO said about how a pandemic comes to an end. And one way is it actually burns through and runs its course. And the other way is people just stop caring. They decide it's dead. And well, I, I think there is a significant number of people, um, particularly in South Dakota, who have adopted that uh, point of view. Well, most of these people were not from South Dakota. This was true. A, a, a smattering of archers. So, and it's not just that. You know, I went to uh, Linda and I had a free hotel night at a casino in Nevada. We thought, oh, wow. okay, we'll we'll go to that. So. We made the drive, you know, it was only about an hour and a half. And we made the drive thinking no one would be there. The place would be completely dead. And the place was packed to the gills. I've never seen so many people in Wendover, Nevada. Uh, yeah. Every parking lot was full and every table was full. It was hard to even throw away my money gambling. So people are... They have experienced pandemic fatigue for better or worse. It's not for me to judge. And if you're sitting at home judging, you probably shouldn't either. But, um, you know, it certainly explains why America is number one in this circumstance for total people infected. You know, I was uh, talking with Tom Dillon on the last podcast about the new uh, guidelines from the IOC for the upcoming Tokyo Games. It's certainly not going to be like that. Um, even well, if things to, get better, you know, they've yeah, got they to have a lot. to play to a certain standard, of course, you know, and they, they can't go out and say, we don't give a rip. Let's just do whatever. They can't say yeah. that. No. And, you know, in order to have the games, um, basically athletes will be shuttled between the Olympic village and the venue. Two days after elimination, you're expected to be on an airplane leaving Japan. Yep. So no, no participating in the closing ceremony. I'm, I'm going to be shocked if there's an athlete parade for the opening ceremony. I don't think there will be. Yeah, I wouldn't expect it. And I don't think there's going to be very many spectators either. Um, you know, they'll make it up with television. I would have assumed that they would uh, be doing a bubble situation where you get in and you've got to be tested. And then, you know, they do their best to try to. Yeah, that's exactly how they're going to handle it. Within the village and. Same but, for yeah. the judges and technical officials, you know, um, unlike any other Olympics that, you know, I've been to what, seven of them, you've been to a couple of them. Um, you know, that, uh, a lot of, a lot of the time you spend is at the venue, but then when you're not at the venue, you're at a restaurant or you're somewhere getting some food or maybe even sightseeing. If you have the time, that's not going to happen either for the Tokyo games. So, yeah, and that's okay. You know, we got to figure out how to hold the games. It's yeah. This isn't something that should prevent us from doing anything. I mean, we've, we, you can look at any statistic from anywhere that's had a lockdown and anywhere that hasn't had a lockdown and the, the numbers look pretty much the same. So, um, 
obviously isolation if done to the most extreme standard would work but you can't let the world come to a screeching halt and i, I think, think everyone more, would more places are figuring that out yes yeah people would love to see the olympics take place well, in the absence of having live events, one thing WA did very successfully, in my opinion, was to put on a virtual event. And this morning they announced Oh Jin Hyuk, the recurve men's winner of the World Indoor Series, which is uh, a great congratulations to our friend, Mr. O. That's, uh, that was some great shooting. Yeah, he was uh, top form. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, Brady um, actually took uh first place in a couple of the stages O was in all four remote stages um he finished second in a couple of them and then he took the last one and his performance overall gave him the win there were four stages from november through this month and then uh, a bonus live leg in Nîmes in january and um you got your best three to put toward the ranking round results and 6,600 archers competed in the series worldwide. Crazy stuff. I mean, that's clearly the biggest single event. If you want to look at it that way from, uh, you know, from what WA has done in the past and a lot of work for a few people too. I mean, they had to look at probably well over 20,000 images of targets and scorecards uh, to certify the scores. And uh, you know, that was a, a lot of effort. Yeah, I'm not going to look at it that way. I, I, I don't think it was <laughs> the largest event. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not going to get behind virtual events, not ever. Yeah, I, I hear that and I understand it. And I, you know, I think that uh, it was a nice stopgap. It was a good thing to have in the forced absence of live events. But Speaking of live events, there's a full calendar ahead. You know, an Olympic year is usually pretty busy, but this year, oof, uh, we have NFAA Indoor Nationals. We have a Vegas championship event. Um, we're still waiting on info from the NFAA for the virtual Vegas event for the flights. And then, of course, we've got a full roster calendar for World Cup. Um, three events for World Cup, followed by a final an Olympic Games, a Paralympic Games, a World Championship this year. I mean, there's a ton going on. Yeah, so I'm sure a number of those items are going to fall off the list. You know, I, I wouldn't expect the first World Cup to take place in, in Guatemala. Uh, they were actually one of the first countries to close their borders. You know, I don't expect yeah. them to be, to be wanting to host an international archery event. I would, I would agree that it's ambitious. I think Shanghai is actually probably going to be the one that uh, for sure is going to be on the bubble from the standpoint of, of happening or not happening, because the reality is, you know, China's borders are, are tightly sealed from uh, for that kind of travel. And I right. don't expect that will change right away. You know, you're also looking at a situation where um, there's going to be uh, an absolute necessity to have the event for, for Paris. You know, that, that event is so important in the context of the Olympic Games and the final selection for the teams that they're going to pull out all the stops to make sure that one happens. And, of course, that's separate from the World Cup, that, that final selection event, uh, final qualifying tournament from the Paris Games. 
But, you know, I think the reality is a lot of people are going to have to pick and choose what events they go to. Um, I didn't mention Reading. I know you're planning, uh, hopefully, to go to Reading this year, right? Oh, yeah. And I think by May, it'll be a much different environment, you know, and. uh, Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that's why I I give hope to some of the rest of the World Cups. But I think the first. The first uh, World Cup is in april is that correct yep you're right and i think that's going to be a challenge to pull off uh, in late april so we'll see i mean i hope everything happens it's just a it's a very tight schedule and there's there's so many things that can disrupt everything and then there's so many things that are going to disrupt people's participation such as uh you know some of the u.s athletes have to decide if they want to go to if world cup one takes place They'd have to go to World Cup one and then come back and they'd have Olympic trials here in the States. Well, if they happen to get a positive test, obviously they would miss Olympic trials. They'd have to quarantine in Guatemala for a period of time. So they're not going to go. Yeah. So No, you don't want to take that kind of chance. Absolutely. Right. There's all sorts of those factors that are going to play into whether tournaments happen. I mean, Guatemala may say, yeah, let's have a tournament and no one, it might just be that no one signs up. Yeah. I mean, it, it, just looking at it practically, there's there's uh, a challenge there. And the other thing is there's the Parapan and that that is going to be a qualifying tournament for uh, American continental entities that have not already won slots at previous events. So, for example, the U.S. can't win anything there, but a few other countries, uh, Latin American countries, South American countries, they have an opportunity there. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a balancing act all season long. And um, in the meantime, for the average person out there, uh, the biggest opportunity is going to be to get ready for outdoor season after all this time off and maybe not having gotten to get to Yankton or some other events. And I think that um, one thing we should talk about a little bit is making that seasonal transition from indoor to outdoor and getting ready for outdoor season. There's a lot of uh, equipment stuff that comes into play when you're making that changeover. Um, on the compound side, Steve, what is what is your philosophy for switching from indoor to outdoor? Um, I try to do, you know, I see people who set up an indoor bow and an outdoor bow, and I'm not a big believer in that. I want to, I want to shoot the same bow all year long, right? Retain the feel. Yeah. Um, so I, I do usually go places with two bows, but the other one is more of just a, it's a, it's somewhere to borrow parts from if I have to. So, right. Um, if you keep the feel the same, then, you know, they're as close as you can. Then a lot of things kind of work their way into the fold naturally. Obviously you go outdoors. Generally the bow feels quite a bit different simply because you're shooting arrows that are significantly lighter. So you start to feel that, you know, a greater feedback from the bow and, uh, you know, might sound unless, a lot different. Unless, unless you're Ojin Hyuk and you just won the world indoor series with your outdoor X10. Yeah. But you asked me about compounds. So I did, I uh, did, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah. And I was, I was going to touch on that a little bit, you know, the fact that we do shoot considerably different arrows and, and recurvers may not. Um, 
but it's a matter of just getting everything to fit right, adjusting peep height to to match the game you're going to play next. And honestly, with with today's bows and how easy they tune, and the way you can just swap a rest, you know, a rest body, so you've got set up for every different arrow you want. It's pretty simple to to make the the change. I'd say the biggest thing is just making sure you're comfortable with your peep height. A lot of people forget to adjust that, and they end up struggling with a, their head floating around or something like that you know yeah that's a very good point and uh, you know in the case of the recurve if you've been using aluminum arrows um switching to your outdoor setup as soon as you can is probably a good idea um now you know that in the times past top shooters guys like daryl pace they'd actually drop weight during the indoor season which made sense because they were shooting more than 50 pounds outdoors back in the day and they're competing with aluminum arrows um Today, you still have a very small sliver of top shooters shooting over 50 pounds, but the vast majority of shooters at the Olympic Games or the World Championships in the men's category are shooting in the high 40s, and they aren't changing weight all that much, uh, you know, seasonally. Uh, it's not something that people tend to do today the way they did in the past. But the feel difference is there if you've been shooting aluminums and you're going to uh, shoot outdoor arrows X10s. Brady just shot a 599 with X10s. Obviously, he's switched uh, somewhere in the past couple of weeks to uh, his outdoor setup. I think he's getting ready relatively early, and it's clearly not hurting his score at all, shooting the, uh, the X10s versus the aluminums. Uh, his previous score, uh, which um, you know he, he came close to cleaning again, uh, was with an RX7. And... Uh, if you look at it from the perspective of what he's been doing, um, you can understand why he'd be getting ready pretty much right about now for outdoor season. And I think that a lot of shooters in Europe and, and Asia, certainly, you know, the Koreans don't switch. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, you've got a situation where they're going to be ready when they finally do get to uh, outdoor events, which is really only a couple, three weeks down the road for some people in some places. You got, Korean Olympic trials continuing, and you have some other trials problems uh, in Japan, of course, uh, being worked out. And you've got a situation where they'll be doing their trials. The U.S. trials are coming up relatively soon. So people are really starting to, as we get into the third week of February, uh, really start thinking about getting outdoors. I think that um, one subject that's kind of interesting and that I've uh, just recently seen a question on is knocks and how often should you be switching out your knocks? What's your philosophy on that subject? Uh, I mean, I'm not like counting shots with them or anything, but I'm also trying to, to swap them out regularly enough that I don't have to worry about counting shots. So I, I would say, you know, indoors, I'm probably, you're shooting a lot typically indoors and, I don't have, you know, I usually build a dozen indoor arrows. I don't have a couple dozen. So the same so you're ones cycling are getting, through those shots fairly, fairly often. Yeah. Same ones are if getting shot to, more often. If so, you had to hazard a guess, how many shots do you think you get per arrow before you choose to switch out? I couldn't even tell you it, that. I don't know. I don't know. So we so, used to keep pretty good track of it at the Olympic training center. And, um, you know, for practice, you'd see people shooting 300, 500 shots on a single knock um, and, and not have 
too much agita about it. But then say a few days before a big event, you'd see people switching wholesale, you know, Brady, for example, he'd just switch out all his knocks. Um, and then, you know, you shoot them in, of course. And by the time you get to the tournament, you've got fresh knocks on all your arrows. That's uh, exactly what I did. So I, like, I would typically, let's say I've got Vegas next week, next weekend, you know, this weekend I'm switching knocks at whatever local event I'm shooting. Yeah. So you get a, a good get ready. two or three days of shooting in on them before you uh, show up on the line at a tournament with them. Right. And I try to, if I'm shooting like a field archery event, you know, I'm not switching knocks for that. So I'll typically like say Redding, a lot of times we'd shoot Dakota classic before the week before Redding. So I would shoot or two weeks before or thereabouts. So I would put on all new knocks, shoot them there at Dakota classic and then take that to Redding, shoot them there. And then usually, you know, another couple tournaments after that. So they're getting a, a couple months of tournament use and then I'm probably swapping them out. Yeah. So, you know, from that perspective, um, I think that, you know, knocks are, are another thing that uh, it's a consumable. Also, yeah. I think, how tight is your string fit, Steve, typically? Mm, I, typically, my center serving is 110 thousandths, 111 thousandths. Yeah, so, so a relatively loose fit. If you were to pull on that knock, it would come off the string relatively easily. It wouldn't pull the string too far before it would separate. Right, and that's... That's and a, I think that makes a, a big the most importance. Yes. If you're running a, a thick center serving, you're going to be blowing out knocks pretty fast. Exactly. And I think, that, you know, with the, with the compound, the impulse that's uh, applied to the knock is straight down the middle with the recurve. There's a pretty good side load on the knock and um, a combination of a tight center serving and uh, finger release can actually wear a knockout faster than a, uh, even a compound with its higher specific impulse at launch um, will typically do. And I think that you're seeing a situation where a lot of people, uh, you know, it, over time will gravitate toward a solution that works, a combination of center serving diameter and knock fit that works well for them. But if it's too tight, you can really um, wear things down pretty quickly, even within 100 shots per knock. Uh, mm -hmm. so that you'd see a difference plus whatever wear you get on the serving. And there's uh, certain compound bows that the way they come out of let off were very hard on knocks as well for that's true. For a couple of years, the Matthews bows were really bad on knocks. It didn't matter yeah. what. And uh, the knock that most of those guys actually said worked best was uh, standard X10 pin knock, which you would think the, the larger G pin would work better, but the shorter, smaller eared X10 pin knock seemed to work better. Out of a compound. And of course that was a knock that was originally designed for recurve, but uh, works really well for compound as well. And especially some of those higher energy uh, or higher ramp energy bows like the ones you just described. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think I remember the first time we saw people talking about this being an issue with compounds, um, it might've been something like a PSE moneymaker model that Chance Bobuff used to shoot. And if I recall correctly, that thing was was hard on knocks originally. And uh, some of the compound guys, they were switching over to super knocks um, from other knocks to, to try to have them hold up a little better. I don't know if that helped or not, because that super knock is relatively tight on a lot of compound strings. It's meant for hunting. And as a result, you know, the fit is pretty tight. Then again, though, after you shoot them a few times, maybe they settle in. 
Yeah, and you know, Knox aside, the the point I think is important to make for the listeners. You don't have to be changing Knox, you know, every week or something. That you don't need no. to spend a ton of money on it, but you you'll be far better served by making sure you are swallowing them out here and there. They're they're not so expensive that you shouldn't be doing it, but you don't have to do it all the time. The other factor is the center serving material. What do you like to use? Um, Halo or Majesty. I guess Majesty is kind of hard to get a hold of right now. Some people are starting to use BCY Power Grip. I like yeah, the stuff that like Halo. It stays around. Yeah, Halo and the original Angel ASB serving are basically the same stuff. And um, now Angel has switched over to a product called Izanas which is a Japanese-made uh, Dyneema. So it's basically the same thing as the original Angel ASB. Um, I, I know Lancaster has it for sale. It's, it doesn't come cheap, but uh, I still think that after all these years, that is one of the best center-serving materials. Uh, you know, it's been around for nearly 30 years now, and it really works well. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't wear very quickly. And it wears evenly when it does. If you have a very tight knock fit, it's fairly forgiving to that. It's very lubrous. It doesn't uh, hang up on your tab if you're a recurve shooter. So, um, you know, the, the uh, BCY Halo was made later in order to compete with it. And I think it's a very similar material. Um, either of those choices is still a good one. And uh, I-Z-A-N-A-S, uh, if you're looking for the Angel Current material, is the, uh, is the name of that. And you're, you're talking, think, when you go back to like what I said about how I don't like to change bows, I don't yeah. want to redo my center serving either. Cause that's like, no. it's almost like changing your bow. Well, in your case, it's also more complicated than that because it forces you to change your D loop. Right. Right. So I want, and I don't mind changing my D loop, but I like to keep my knock point, you know, where it's at. So from, from the jump, you want to make sure you have a center serving that can last you basically a whole year. For, for me, what I'm looking for is, you know, indoor season starting in October or whenever running through the end of outdoor season um, in, in August and September sometimes. And I've had bows, like one of my old silver bows. I ended up shooting it for almost two years with the same set of strings. And it was pretty tired by the end. But, you know, with, with the good center serving, it lasted that whole time. Maybe a really good time of year to look at that center serving on everybody's setup. Make sure that it's up to snuff as you transition to outdoor so you're not stuck with a change, you know, while you're trying to ramp up for the season. So besides uh, making sure that everything's tight on your bow and, and, you know, your strings are in good condition, your center serving's in good condition, your knocks, your arrows, everything else. Um, one question I get a lot as people get ready to transition to outdoors is what to do about stabilizers and how to pick the right stabilizer for their setup. I've gotten that question from a number of people. And so yeah, maybe let's take a few minutes to talk about that subject in general. Uh, you and I, we can address stabilizers from both compound and recurve respectively. I, I want to start with your thoughts on uh, if you've had any changes. We talked about this maybe 20 or 30 podcasts ago, your philosophy on stabilizers. But have you had any, any um, revelations shall we say in terms of stabilizing uh, your bow in the last few months i have not so same philosophy <laughs> yeah i mean 
my my philosophy is always try not to get crazy with thinking that stabilizers are going to change your life you know and if, yeah. if you have a problem holding below the, the middle of the target more weight in the back isn't going to help despite what yeah you, you'll compensate yeah they think it's going to like pitch the bow up or something but no no that doesn't help um but it, mostly my philosophy is just find find what you think works best for you and then make changes slowly if you're having a crappy day it's probably because you literally woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something like that and you shouldn't be tearing it apart and making wholesale changes so you know go drink a glass of water and wait 30 minutes and see what happens what's the uh what are the most popular stabilizers you guys are selling right now definitely the halcyons um a lot of people how do i say this how do i say this without revealing too much info well, for one thing, uh, a lot of people like the smaller diameter stabilizers and the fact that it's just as stiff as a large diameter stabilizer while giving you less wind resistance, that's useful. Yeah. From a, an engineering standpoint, the, a guy who really knows carbon shafts of that nature and who uh, is involved in designing a lot of them for a lot of people not just in archery, he, uh, he said the Halcyon has the best blend of material, weight, diameter, you know, to get a total stiffness at a total weight, a total diameter that, that he thinks it's probably the best on the market. And I, I think it, let's be honest, there's not a whole lot proprietary you can do with, with stabilizers. Some of these, some companies are advertising, you know, an exotic material, within the stabilizers that can do things like dampen, like we've, you know, you've heard of smack wrap maybe, which is something you and I actually turned down like five years ago. Yep. And there was a good <laughs> we, reason for that. Yeah. I mean, if you want a, a more dampened stabilizer, in my opinion, put a doinker on the end of it or, yeah. you know, a, a bear, a, a barrel over sleeve on it or something. But uh, I, you know, I prefer still for the, the stabilizer to be as stiff as possible. Um, I don't want the material of the stabilizer to be compromised or damping. If I want damping, right. I'll, I'll add that to it elsewhere. Right. Like the AVRS that we introduced many years ago. It's a separate yeah. system inside the stabilizer, but it doesn't compromise the function of the stabilizer. And I think right. that's and the thing. I don't think that... we put that. It's not in the Halcyon, right? No, no. The diameter didn't lend itself to having that really work well, or if I remember right. But That's exactly right. Yes. So, but, uh, but the Halcyon does have the engineered ferrule system that does provide for considerable damping, um, as well as uh, simply a frequency that seems to feel pretty good and yeah. therefore doesn't, doesn't require as much damping. So when we you did know, the for, prototype Halcyon, it was, it did not have, the first one I shot did not have that long sleeve. Correct. I, I told didn't feel him, I said, this thing stinks, you know? Because I really didn't like it that much. Um, and then, well, you, yeah, I mean, you told me that because I was <laughs> one that worked on the darn thing. So, yeah, you could, you could be honest. <laughs> yeah, I said, we, I made that, we made that change. Yeah, so I don't love it the way it is. It needs some, it needs some support in the base. And you put the five inch sleeve on it, and that really makes all the difference, truthfully. Yeah, yeah, it does. 
And it's not just this, the, the existence of the sleeve. It's also the shape and the uh, taper rate. There's uh, some other stuff there, but we're too much inside baseball. But at the end of the day, you're looking at a, uh, a good solution there. I can understand why it would be the most popular one you're selling right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's uh, works really well for recurve as well. And I think that that's the other consideration. Yep. And it, it's a weird time of year because, you know, stabilizers are. It's really interesting how the stabilizer game works. You see the market get really crazy about them for like a month, every three years, you know, and then everyone forgets and they've got, they've got their stabilizer. It's not something you purchase year after year. You know, it's, it's very durable, good if you take care of it. So sure. It's just interesting, but I, I think, uh, I think the Halcyon is as good or better than anything on the market. And that's, it's not me just saying it because, work here because my predecessor didn't shoot eastern stabilizers right i I think i'd be it'd be fair for me to not if i really didn't want to um but i feel like we've got a good product i like it and a lot more people are starting to realize that so you're getting a lot of other shooters who are taking an interest to it um my wife is shooting them now she really likes them she's complaining to me she wants a 30 inch barf so i got to bring one home today and let her try that there you go. So, now that reminds me, I need to get a uh, a white set since you guys brought them out in white this year. Yes, white, red, blue, and the black we already had. Yeah, I'll send you an email. <laughs> <laughs>